everyone and welcome to a new episode of Rewind, the official podcast of the History Society of St. Stephen's College. The podcast aims to make history and its various aspects more accessible and interactive and to facilitate simplified conversations between students and historians, writers, academicians and curators. Today we have with us Ms. Farayami who works on food histories, oral history projects and digital archives. Thank you so much for being with us here today, Ms. Mm -hmm. Um, So I trained as a filmmaker and that is my training. I am, I'm not a historian by training and I would not call myself a historian. I work with food histories and most of it is oral histories. So the first ever project, film project that I was brought on and that never came to culmination was on the history of the biryani. So we were planning to do a series of episodes on the biryani and how it traveled across the world. And one question that at that time we were very keen to answer was where did the biryani originate or what is the story of its origin? And I mean, I researched that a lot, but at that time my idea of research was very unformed. And I was really looking hard for what could be pinned down as an origin story for the biryani. And I realized over the period of researching this again and again, because the series never happened. So I was just going back to it because it's a subject that was very interesting. And I realized that you can, you can say that rice was cultivated in a specific place in ancient history, and that is an origin story. But to say that something like a biryani originated somewhere is a very, it's a very naive and unnuanced historical position to take because it's biryani is essentially a one pot and it would have like the pulao have originated at several places at the same time. And I think that is what was most interesting to me, the fact that food as history is so nuanced and it has a lot of the history of trade routes built in. And also that food history is something that you live every day. And I work mostly with oral histories of food. So my first oral history project was on people remembering Delhi and its transformation. And food often came up in terms of how people remember Delhi. And that is how I really got into writing about food and thinking about food history. What do you think is the significance of food histories as an interdisciplinary field? Because like you said, there are a lot of things and a lot of other aspects which come into this within uh, this subject as well because it's related to so many other things. And how do you think it's crucial for uh, the reconstruction of cultural practices? And they're obviously also connected to the disciplines of social history and ethnography. So in yeah. these... In this context, what do you think is the importance or significance of food history as a interdisciplinary field? Yeah, I think very often when as people who read and people who are not historians, as I am not, and before I started working with food history, I would often think of food specifically in terms of what happens within the kitchen. But then food is a cycle, right? It starts from it has trade in it. It is. It has a lot of agricultural history in it and therefore economic history in it. Uh, there is a lot of social science. Uh, well, social science is a very broad term. Uh, but uh, trade history specifically is something that I find very interesting. So if you stop thinking of food in terms of what women produce in the kitchen, and it is, I feel that this gender notion of food being a woman's preserve, which is why it, it began to be, become important to history only much later. Uh, if we think of food as a cycle, as a, as a everyday cycle of production, consumption, and, uh, you know, and recycling and sharing, then, then you see that there are many layers of how you understand food, like one very important uh, part of looking at food is obviously caste histories. And uh, a lot of sociologists and anthropologists, notably Arjuna Pudurai, has done a lot of work on uh, food as 
and food and how we share food and how we construct otherness around food as an important ways in which caste is enacted then there is agriculture and the moment you think of agriculture you're thinking of the economics and how you reconstruct economics and if you're looking into the discipline of archaeology uh organic remains of food are often the ways in which we understand ancient civilizations because they are one of our most important clues of how you, you know these origins of what crops started where being cultivated at in different parts of the world at different times so i mean there are so many ways of looking at food i mean you can also look at food in terms of aesthetic histories and how we uh, think of aesthetics you can look at food i mean there's been some wonderful work in america for instance about uh, looking at slave histories and resistance through food so i mean there is absolutely as many ways of interpreting food as i mean as there are disciplines it is simply the need of a vision and if you can if you can open your eye and stop thinking about food as this thing that only is something that you ingest and excrete and then you think about food as a very important part of our existence it's one of the most fundamental human needs then you start connecting it with human existence in itself you talked about gender and caste and you have talked about how these the study of these constructs intersects with the history of food so how do you think this is related to the idea where the upper caste indian woman has been elevated and aestheticized as the caregiver whereas women from socially marginalized groups who works as maid works who work as maids their employment is usually seen as something which compromises on the duties of the quote unquote housewife or on the safety of the family so how do you think caste and gender play a role in the creation of these stereotypes right okay so there is caste and gender and to expand this a bit more let us think of it as class so i can never pronounce his name but pierre bourdieu he talks about you know the development of taste and he specifically speaks about sugar and how sugar became popular because earlier it was a it was accessible only to a certain class of people because they had the money for it and then because it was eaten by a certain class of people uh, a number it was craved and it was a desire desire of people who could not afford it and then gradually it became it became more affordable through you know multiple changes in the world economy and once it became affordable then it became this whole thing about avoiding sugar became a moral you know a, a moral good now if you avoid sugar there is a certain amount of moral goodness here that you are uh uh that you are displaying you are displaying and this is again avoiding sugar has now become this upper class uh privilege while uh, the the lower middle class eats larger amounts of sugar that's i mean that's how these these narratives are constructed the same happens with caste which is of course more insidious than class because there are there are extractive exploitative uh, practices built within caste that you would uh, that are far more insidious than it is in a class structure and uh, i find that that because there is this whole morality about about the nurturing role of the woman and the fact that um uh the fact the fact that if a woman is not performing that duty so she is somehow less of a woman while when a when a person from a lower caste is doing the job they're never doing the job in terms of then they're never do, doing the job as a nurturing act they are doing the job because they are making money and the moment money comes into this whole moral and nurturing act of food that the it takes away from its 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 nurturing the the transactional nature of this exchange takes takes away immediately from this idea that food could nurture if it is made by somebody from a lower caste and then of course there are these ideas that a person from a lower caste is never clean enough 
to uh, to be able to transfer the same values of goodness that an upper caste virtuous woman from from the family would be able to impart into the food so there are lots of ideas that transfer from the body into the food and and therefore our assumptions about whether that food is uh, nutritious and nurturing for our bodies or not and i think to this we can also connect uh, as we have talked about how food and how we construct its history or how even the contemporary time how we view cuisine that has an important contribution to the process of nation making and the process of nation making then in turn also affects the way that we visualize these concepts so could you elaborate on that yes i think uh recently utsa's ray's work on food and the construction of a nation although it is it is discussed in this very small microcosm of upper middle class uh, bengal and uh, even in bengal it is talking primarily of calcutta and then it is it's calcutta's links to the villages that surround it uh but in that case in that case also she looks uh, back at tanika sarkar's idea of you know the idea of the bengali woman or the upper caste woman as the as the person who is the preserve of domestic purity and therefore therefore all the all the works that a that a upper caste woman does in the act of serving the household in the act of preserving the spiritual purity of the household uh are are rendered this uh this you know this halo and this uh, this aura of uh, of spirituality where food and the act of feeding the family becomes a spiritual act and that is something that then the nation ascribes to itself that our women are these women who selflessly serve the family and selflessly uh, forego like the 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 virtue of a woman foregoing a meal and you know, this might happen have happened to you it has definitely happened to me where your mother would give you the better portion of the meal and wait until everything uh, everything else was eaten so that she would she, she would she would have like whatever is left left over and i've i've seen this in a lot of households in my own extended family so all of that builds this idea of india as this as this nation of higher spiritual ideals which is often what is also being uh, being sold now and then of course now there is this hyper nationalistic idea of the nation which is also being uh, fueled by the idea of how we are pure and how we and and this whole debate around beef whether it can be eaten or not eaten and and the fact that a person who would either eat beef or sell beef is not does is not somebody who conforms to the idea of what the hindu nation uh should be and therefore is excluded from this morality of uh this the hindu nation um so yeah i mean over different periods of time the domestic preserve has always been included into this larger project project of nation making some and it is very often it very often uh touts women as the upholder or of these ideals of the of the nation while also undermining their access and agency to the public space and um, so it, it works in both ways it 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 puts the women on a pedestal and by putting them on a pedestal it removes their access from to the everyday similarly a bit related to this but talking more about cultural significance you have talked about how there is a certain relationship between touch and the intimacy that is brought about by touch and how we cook food and how this is related to the um, persian and sanskrit concepts of maza and rasa and how it it can mean a lot of things and how this is something which is very important in a lot of cultures and touch is utilized as a form of sensory feedback to understand yeah. the essence of eating the food however despite this cultural significance it is underrepresented in media and this 
could be as has been argued by people it is a product of imposition of westernized standards of hygiene and sanitation so how do you think this process was brought about wherein the idea of touch intimacy was removed from at least the very mainstream representations of um, cooking and the kitchen in media um i don't know if it was a conscious you know elimination of this representation but i remember in the 90s and i mean i did a lot of uh, background research on looking at on looking at how food was represented in television in the 90s and even if you look at the newspapers from that time when you look at the images of the food those the images of that food were so aesthetized you would not at the time have related it to the average middle class the the food that you would see on your plate on a day on a daily basis it was never it was never arranged in that beautiful way and you you see that a lot even now if you see instagram and if you see indian food bloggers and how they represent their meal it is it looks very beautiful and it's very charming to look at but would would you ever put the meal on your everyday plate like that it's not it's it's creating a certain idea of what a beautiful meal that is presented to somebody or that is presented to see like that's that's for a spectacle should look like but every day meal would never look like it and then if you remember sanjeev kapoor and uh, jigs kalra when they were presenting they were they had these array of tools which you would never have found in your kitchen and they had these measuring spoons and measuring cups and i remember when i used to bake cakes i would take like a teacup and then everything would be measured by that teacup and the teaspoon was anything that was vaguely smaller than a tablespoon and you measured with that and there was never never these set measures and indian cooking specifically has always been about andaz which is something i also talk about in that article and it and if you ask your mother for a recipe she's likely to she's likely to be saying okay you just put these things in a certain order but it will be very hard for them to pin down a certain amount and say you have to put half a teaspoon of this and one and three quarters of a teaspoon and no more because that is not how how intuitive cooking works but when you were presenting for spectacle the making of these dishes that were so removed from us at the time like these dishes in the restaurants that were that were sold as as an aspiration to the middle class where when middle class going out and eating in a restaurant was an event not a regular thing and then to replicate that and to to and to create a sense of desirability there was this whole western canon of that was adopted which where everything you did was with a, a tool that was an extension of your hand but very rarely your hand itself and it is only now that you see on these on these blogs and pages like food z or village cookings where people are again it's an aesthetized it's an aesthetized look but people are again representing chopping not on a chopping board but this air chopping against your you know against your flanges which is which is a very local a, a very indian way of of you know chopping food it's it's been the chopping board is a very recent addition to the indian kitchen so i mean i think a lot of has, it has to do with aesthetics uh, i can i can't say that word aestheticization and a lot of it also has to do with the fact that there has always been a demonization of how using the hand uh, and the fact that people from the east at large the orient they use their hands and therefore it's that that it is an unclean way of eating and that is something that was uh that was built into us for the longest time where eating in a restaurant with your hand was just considered considered a no because it was somehow uncouth to do it but you could do it in hiding within the comfort of your home but it was understood that when other people were watching you people strangers were watching you you would eat with a spoon because that was the hygienic and proper way of eating so 
it has been a lot about spectacle in fact and the fact that there has been a demonization of the brown persons hands and touch as being unhygienic and transferring uh, to the food whatever bacteria that comes with it and and i mean we we have internalized that and and there has been this this upward mobility has been granted by the by the use of cutlery like forks and knives and that's something that you as you said you very rarely see in um the these fancy tv shows or even in the all the receipts that you find online eliminates these co- concepts and these things which make food the very personal entity that it is absolutely and i mean your mother's dal might not taste the same every time she makes it but it is but the fact is you know it is her dal because it has a certain flavor profile in it on one day it might have more dhania and on the other day it might have less and that's not it's not like a restaurant it's not a commercial setup where where you're trying to recreate the same taste ad infinitum it is an always evolving dish versus something that has been frozen in time by x number of teaspoons and y number of cups i mean it has it's a con- a household kitchen and a household menu um, not so much a menu but the ingredients are ever evolving for the intuitive cook i mean and i i'm sure it is the same for i i am not even sure i know that it is the same for professional cooks but the fact that when they are they are imparting it as a knowledge that somebody else can recreate then they are they have to they they are trying to be to be able to do this with a precision that somebody else can follow because because you know the imbibement of this embodied knowledge of wo chutki kitni badi hogi how how big is that pinch how big is that pinch of salt or uh, how much is a how much is a uh, you know a fistful of herbs that is something that is that you can learn only through an embodied transfer of knowledge not through a written or even a video visual obs- i mean uh, an uh, observation on a video format it is something that you learn by observing and that doesn't really happen on the television or on a blog or wherever right and so one of the other things that you have worked on which uh, is really interesting that you have talked about the relationship between food and caste and particularly ghee or as i recently found out clarified butter and you have related yeah. it to social relations in india and talked about the transition from animal fat to vegetable fat in certain communities and how this is related to caste in india so could you elaborate on this process yeah i think everything can be related to caste in india there is nothing you can you can look at anything and it will be like okay this is how caste is built into this ghee or which you which you have discovered is clarified butter as ghee butter here which is hilarious like, like if you go into the shop in, in cambridge and you look at and you look at you're looking for ghee and they'll say ghee butter and i'm like what is ghee butter and anyway i i still haven't found a decently smelling ghee in cambridge i am yet to discover it but uh yeah fats in fact somebody recently wrote to me on instagram that um i posted something about using mustard oil and deep frying in refined oil which is a much later addition and uh, uh they said that frying in beef tallow was very popular in their household uh until much later beef or or even goat tallow but beef produces far more tallow because it's a bigger animal uh the buffalo is usually a much bigger animal uh than uh than a goat or a sheep uh, actually no sheep sheep have a fair amount of fat but uh it was for a very long time it was either ghee if you could afford it and of course that depended on whether you had a family that uh that had that kept cows and other cattle and therefore you could uh, you could get enough ghee to say deep fry something and deep frying is very deeply ingrained in our uh in our culture like shirin mehrotra decently wrote but something like a beef uh, beef tallow or a sheep tallow it would it would 
eel this any kind of animal lard or even vegetable shortening it yields a very very crisp pastry for something that is deep fried and that is of course texturally speaking and not nutritionally nutritionally speaking that is a very desirable effect in something that uh something like a puri or a khasta kachori you want it to be flaky and you want it to really crumble under the touch of your fingers and which is what something like an animal tallow would afford but a lot of it there are two things i think that would have that have made an effect on whether or not uh, whether we use animal fat or not in urban middle class homes it animal fat is still used in in a lot of homes in the rural areas and also in urban homes uh where people do not always have access to things like refined oil which which is prohibitively expensive one thing was the structure of the house i mean we have increasingly moved urbanization has increasingly moved to these uh the flat structure where houses are on one on top of the other often with very little ventilation so in dense unplanned ur- urban homes you often have very little uh, uh, very little uh, outlet for for smells so if there is a very very strong smell in your house it's not finding any outlet and and earlier the earlier structure of houses especially before the lpg became uh became common uh, was the was that the kitchen was op- often an open kitchen with a, with and and you had uh, you always had a very it was uh, always had a you know an easy outlet for the smoke so which meant that if you were cooking something in beef or uh, uh, beef tallow or any other kind of tallow any kind of animal fat the smell would easily dissipate so it is not something that is going to inhabit your house and that is one thing the other thing is the whether you find the smell offensive and that is a hygiene morality that is born out of caste where you know this whole idea that a middle class home must smell good because it is a hygienic home because it is a because good smells and 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 good smells are like uh, what you would call floral smells smells that uh, or or a smell or the smell of oud or the smell of jasmine like the the smell that you you would associate with a perfume not the smell of of a of a dead animal right and that is where caste comes in where you you're like my as a as a middle class urban urban home my home must smell of whatever these new era fake fragrances are versus uh, instead of smelling like the food we have just cooked and this is something that happens very often when we cook here in in the uk uh and if you meet a lot of indian families there's this whole shame if a white person is visiting that your house smells like curry and and that shame about the house smelling like curry when instead it should smell like some citrus fragrance and that that had that has penetrated deep down so one reason of course was that an upper caste middle class home should not be smelling of animal fat and the uh, other reason is the fact that the fact that these urban homes that were built that were really small and poorly ventilated did not allow that smell to to dissipate so it was a combination of those two anxieties about how you present yourself and how your how your home is reflective of you as a as a mi- middle class upwardly mobile person who can now access these more healthy more refined oils uh, that represent your, your upward mobility uh, uh versus uh these uh versus people who would take absolutely any fat because that is what was accessible to them but you could afford refined oil which is automatically a signal of your class yeah and i think here we can see that as you mentioned that it is also related to 
the kind of homes that people live in that perhaps demography and urban planning and everything is another discipline yeah. to which food histories can relate one of the things that you talked about was how food is connected to the concept of constructing solidarities as well as rejecting paternalistic attitudes from the side of the government and you talked about the farmers protest uh, and how the sharing of food or the rejection of the food provided by the government was one of the ways through which solidarity was built and resi- resistance was maintained so what do you think is the emotional or cultural value of um, communal eating in these contexts um i think this is often it is so explicit and visible in the diaspora and i'm seeing it right now is that the moment you are displaced from your place of comfort which is often like if you're in a foreign country and you don't know people you tend to you tend to make spaces for yourself and very often the first instance of creating those spaces is through the sharing of food that is familiar to you and the sharing of food that you know another person recognizes and another another person shares that memory of say a, a chawal and dal right it's a, just just the fact that another person has this has similar not the same but similar similar fondness and perhaps similar memories of eating that meal is immediately a point of solidarity but in case of protests food takes a very you know a, a much larger meaning because in a protest as in a train very different situation but in a protest you're often sharing your food with complete strangers and these are strangers who whose motivations you don't know except for the fact that they are on the same side so hopefully they're for the same reasons as you are and therefore once you share a meal just the sharing of a meal can precipitate the sharing of so many emotions because it is sharing a, a meal is a very very intimate act and the fact and the and the act of feeding and the act of nurturing again which which is something we associate with you know these with mothers and uh something we associate with the family bonding when you translate that into a public space of dissent then you are creating these new families and then these new families are the ones that fuel your solidarity and uh, i think yeah that's the fact that the farmers protest was led by the sikh community i'm i'm not saying the sikh community were the only people but the feeding at least was largely by members of the sikh community who already have a very very strong culture of langars where they where they are feeding people constantly but here they are not feeding people only who have come for a for piety and people who have come um to uh, to offer their you know offer their respects at a holy place but there are people who have who have come and who has whose passions are moved by the same sense of needing justice as uh, as theirs is and there is there is autom- there is then two levels of solidarity that you build where you are i where you are like i share your pain i don't just share your faith as as in uh, say a langar in a gurudwara but i also share your pain and i also share your hope and your dream and that food and that offering of that food in that sense holds all of those hopes and dreams and those pain and therefore it becomes a powerful a, a powerful vessel of that solidarity when we think about it more regular things become the more we just tend to normalize them in our own heads and forget their significance but yeah. food, something that we consume every day and as we have been discussing which has so many aspects to it it has such a powerful relationship with memory with yeah. not with popular memory as well as personal memory and um, as you said before you have also worked on oral history projects which are related to food and one of the projects that i read about was where you worked in old delhi 
and you interviewed a particularly special resident called Nazim Changezi. So could you mm-hmm. tell us more about this project? Uh, Nasim Mirza Changezi, his, I mean, I think the, when we wrote that article, uh, Changezi Sahib had passed away. He was 106 when he passed away. Uh, but he was, this, this was part of the Delhi Oral Histories Project, uh, also the, the Delhi Oralities Project, which is held at Ambedkar University, Delhi. And if you would want to access the interviews, you would have to go to the Center for Community Knowledge at Ambedkar University, and they would perhaps let you access those interviews. But uh, this was more of a memory of the city and how the city changed. And at that stage in my research career, I hadn't really been thinking of food as an important as an important agent in how people view the city and how people view change in the city. Uh, and Changiji Sahab, of course, he's he's known as the person in Delhi, he was he was an Indian National Congress member, and he he is very proud of the fact that he attempted and uh, he had he made an assassination attempt on the life of Lord Irwin. But uh, his whole idea of food is that romance about old Delhi that is often peddled in our popular discourse about. He he would talk about the table of Abdul Rahim Khan Khana as if he was there, and then he would talk about that there would be 112 different things on his table, which is a possibility. I don't know, but I don't know where that memory came from. But there are also memories of food that we construct. For instance, the idea that the I mean, one of my my a project that I'm currently working on is with Sheffield University, and it is. Uh, it is looking at Muslim food cultures in India. And it is investigating this idea that largely Muslim food is biryani and pulao and khorma and bakar khani, which is what you often get on the streets of, uh, of Shah Jahanabad. And, and the moment somebody asks uh, things of Muslim food, they're thinking, they they are they are thinking of biryani, which is which is rare. Like no no Muslim family is making biryani on an everyday basis. And in fact, biryani is something that is a very recent addition to the repertoire of my family. And Sadaf Hussain, uh, the chef, he recently did a piece on how he never remembered the biryani as being a centrally Muslim food on thing on days when it was on days of festivity. We would not make a biryani. We would, we would make a pulao, and then we would make a korma. But then biryani suddenly became this Muslim food. So yeah, I mean, so that project was essentially about how people construct uh, and see the city in terms, uh, uh, well, how they saw the city change. But very often there would be these small things that would emerge. Where, for instance, one person remembered that. When he moved to Delhi, uh, he was a young man and he couldn't cook. But he had somehow learned from his mother to make dal and he would make dal for himself. And there were these communal chulhas all over Delhi where you could take uh, where you could take atta and then they would make rotis for you that you could take back home. So these were these communal tandoors all around the city. And he's like, when those when those tandoors closed, I was lucky I got married because I still didn't know how to make a roti. And then my wife made rotis for me. So there are stories similar to this where people think of spaces in the city in terms of the food that they offered. And they have very strong memories saying, I used to frequent this place for food. And that is how I survived. Uh, and this, this could simply be a bread omelette while at some corner. But the idea that spaces are constructed by people who are uh, by people who are selling food on street corners or or places where you would frequent, and I think even if if you are in North Campus, I'm sure there are spaces in North Campus in Delhi University where you think of you know near that Chartwala or near that uh, Sode Sodewali Uncle or near that Chaiwala or let us go to Maggie Point. In Jamia, Maggie Point was a big thing. So, so space was often constructed around 
the food that you could eat in it and a lot of intimacies were built in and around the spaces where you found food yeah because like you said food is just inextricably related to the community that that consumes it and uh, one of your works that i read was talking about how um within islamic law there is a system of social contracts wherein during festivals there's a system of food charity um uh, called zakat and a lot of people who would not be in regular times be able to access festive food they are provided with that by the better of families in the village or in the town and how this is something which builds a sense of community within people who are all mm-hmm. obviously bounded by other ways but then there is this other uh, new construct which also binds them together so can you elaborate on this uh, concept yeah i i think i mean there has in like a lot of other religious communities there's a very strong concept of philanthropy that is built into the religious structure of islam it is the same for say zoroastrianism which has a, even a, an even stronger structure it's the same for christianity uh in islam you are required by law by islamic law or sharia law which is often demonized as as something which is used to oppress women but sharia law requires you to give away 2.5% of your savings annually uh to people from the community who are less privileged and uh, and then there is the rest of the law also requires you to say share your harvest so every time in our house when we uh when we had a harvest of mangoes one tenth of that harvest would always go to people in the neighborhood who did not have who did not we didn't have an orchard but who didn't have gardens or trees uh and people people who would have had to buy mangoes from the market at a price that they could often not afford so of every i remember that of every 10 mangoes we would pick up one and then put it aside to be given away so there is of course this whole and and a lot of it is cultural and a lot of it is specific to india and you would find the law, broader laws of charity then operating differently in different muslim cultures across the world and then again i am speaking from a very small northern in gangetic plain perspective and muslim communities within india tend to operate very differently and have different ways in which they are enact the same sharia laws so i mean there is no uniformity as there is i mean it, as it is impossible in a very large population so um yeah uh, a sense of community is certainly built in the sense that you are bound to take care of uh of the community at large that surrounds you and people who you are in touch with but you see it also this kind of charity it also perpetuates and upholds a status quo and this is a lot of the charity is actually practiced by upper caste muslims and although caste in islam is not always recognized the fact is that most people who can afford to have big houses with gardens in the muslim community like other communities in india are often upper caste people people who have had access to education and have been uh, landed zamindars of old and therefore have had genera- generational wealth even if that wealth has dwindled it has still there is still generational privilege there and this charity i feel and and a lot, lot of people will not agree with me but this charity i feel often just allows the upper caste to assuage its guilt without ever needing them to reflect on a structural change in how these caste inequalities operate in our society or how these class inequalities that are of course related to uh, caste inequalities in our society and by giving away a certain amount in zakat we exonerate ourselves of the need 
to fundamentally just step away or you know for instance a lot of times when people give the zakat they 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 will they will say you know we are we are giving a voice or a pedestal to the voiceless and i'm like you don't need to give a voice or you do not need to give them support you need to just move away from all the space that you are hogging so that these people can occupy it and and i feel that while there is a building of community and i really appreciate that this exists in islam i i also feel that a lot of times it is used as a way of continuing with the status quo another one of oral history projects that i read about it i found it it was called the long emergency collection and it's a digital archive could you tell us obviously as a new and developing field could you tell us about how digital archives work how they are formed and then secondly what is this um, long emergency collection about and what are you trying to bring forth through creating this collection right so the long emergency collection and let us just uh, flag that we are now moving away from food completely Yes. The Long Emergency Collection is part of a larger project called the Democracy Archives, uh, which is, which is a part of a larger project called uh, the Archives of the Political. Uh, it's funded by the ICAS program, which is an Indo-German partnership. And I, I was involved in doing three archives for this, of which the first was a Long Emergency Collection and the. The long emergency collection essentially is an oral history collection. Uh, it interviews people who were writing during the emergency, people who were active journalists during the emergency, and in some cases, it also collects their uh, any ephemera, any newspaper clippings, any other details that they have from the period. So it's trying to construct a sense of what it was like to. be a journalist and be a dissenter in the time of indira gandhi and of course that uh, that also relates very strongly to where we are politically in india right now where dissent is is a complicated yeah where dissent i mean dissent has always been complicated but dissent is now suppressed very violently uh, so that's what the oral history uh, the long emergency uh project does it just it's it's the memory of people who were writing people who were journalists and who were in many cases braving uh um braving the jail braving in incarceration at the time uh some of some of them like i believe <laughs> i i can't remember which of my interviewees said that but some of them really wanted to go to jail for the glory of it because they would they would be political prisoners and you know even within jail there is a class and caste system that operates and as a as a member of a certain class you know you wouldn't you knew you wouldn't be as badly off as as others as the others as the petty criminals whose names nobody knew and i believe somebody said i can't remember who that khusro irani who was the editor i believe of the standard at the time he was not arrested and and he said he has, he never forgave indira for not putting him under arrest but uh yeah so that that is what the project is about now to speak of digital archives because i work with oral history collections and i'm often creating primary material in terms of doing interviews in terms of collecting in terms of um documenting things that are happening now so it's essentially creating a history of now for access in the future so i mean today's history 5 years later uh and because a lot of these collections are born digital what the digital has afforded us is the ability for people uh to document extensively but the problem with extensive documentation which we are doing now is that we have a surfeit of information that we are unable to organize for access and what digital archives do is do some of this organization part 
and it, it's it's very minuscule and very often people when they think of digital archives they're thinking in terms of a website that can be that can be accessed through various clicks but what a digital archive really does is to to keep data in us you know on a digital storage space which could be a server ideally not a hard disk because which can be accessed over a period of format obsolescence so you know right now in the document in the in in terms of text digitally the pdf is the most preferred format although there are like various inconsistencies within the pdf uh what an archive will do is allow you to access pdf when adobe acrobat has expired but you, it will still create either it, it will still have information it will have access information it will have catalog information that will allow you to see that that digital data several years from now when maybe adobe and pdf are no longer in new uh, adobe acrobat and pdfs are no longer in use so a digital archive is just a preservation of digit a material for for a digital future or a digital present if you may say so but uh and and i mean uh, there are also digitized archives and i haven't worked so much with digitized archives as i have with born digital archives which means that the primary material in itself is digital digital it's not photographs of uh, a paper it's not uh, it's not something that exists in an analog form that has been converted to the digitized form uh but i do see digital archives as a future of uh, how we how we do a lot of research about contemporary history with that we come to the end of today's episode of rewind thank you so much ms yamin for taking out your time and talking to us about these topics this was a very interesting session and it was great to interact with you this episode of rewind was hosted by somya singh from second history of st stephen's college and the intro and outro music is credited to anu magom from second philosophy of st stephen's college thank you everyone for joining in and we'll be back with a new episode soon